everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz joining you again for another AIM interview that I did. This was actually on November 4th, 2016, and it was an interview that took place down at Stanford with Dr. Kelly Skeff, who is a personage well-known to the education community. He was program director for 20 years at uh, Stanford University for their internal medicine residency training program. I won't get into any more of his background uh, as I think he explains this pretty well throughout the interview. I hope you enjoy it and I hope to bring you some more of these recordings over the next coming months. If you haven't checked out interviews with Dr. Jen Kogan, who was the former clerkship director at University of Pennsylvania, uh, I think you would really enjoy this interview. And there's also an interview that's been posted with Dr. Joe Lascalzo, who is the current chair at Brigham Women's and Children's in Boston, Massachusetts. Also a really enjoyable interview that took place a while back and was posted a couple months ago. So hopefully you've gotten to those two interviews, but if you haven't, take a listen. I think you'll learn a lot about leadership, education, and lots of other things that are near and dear to our hearts as medical educators. Thank you, and have a great day and enjoy this. So my current position is simply to be a professor of medicine who is not an administrator with the exception of being the co-director with my research colleague, Georgette Stratus of the Stanford Faculty Development Center, which is focused now solely on training clinical teachers and training some of those clinical teachers to train basic science teachers. And so my actually only, only administrative role with a title is the administrative role of being a co-director of the Stanford Faculty Development Center. My professorship has no administrative role with it right now. So it enables me to be a, uh, hopefully a um, helpful gadfly to see what's happening to us as a profession and to see what I can do to try to help that, to see what sort of things have surfaced over time that I see having longevity that is a challenge that seemingly resists lots of innovation and to see what I can do to try to work on that. So it's a wonderful position with uh, none of the program director um, ACGME responsibilities. I have to evaluate no one. I have to uh, accept the residents that I work with in clinic or the residents that I work with on the ward. And it's really a wonderful time for me because for some reason I have the respect of my colleagues who are willing uh, to in fact enable me to do this. And so there's some sense, uh, I get a feeling of, gee, that's what you should be doing. Oh, you have a trip next week that you're going to go give this talk. Oh, that's what you should be doing. So there's some acceptance by others that there's some meaningfulness that I'm supposed to be, that I, I am finding it, but they seem to be taking some pleasure in the meaningfulness that I'm finding in doing something different. So, so my role is to be a to, as a professor, I get the luxury, and unfortunately, Sanford was very nice to me to make me a chaired professor, so that means that I don't have to even at this point have the same challenge of everybody else to decide where their salary is always going to come from, that I really can be doing the things about thinking about what is happening to us. So, uh, so that's where that's where it is now. And then, uh, and the faculty development program has remained vibrant and exciting and we're continuing on as if it were our first year instead of our 32nd year uh, bringing faculty from elsewhere to Stanford and training them to disseminate the hopes that we have about the philosophies of being a teacher as well as the skills of being a teacher. So, so this is sort of uh, probably getting ahead of myself with this question but since we're on that topic if you were to distill down what you have learned from that 32 years, or going into your 32nd year, I think you yeah. said, about faculty development and the field of medical education, yeah. what 
and, and you were meeting with someone and they had never been a medical educator. What two or three things potentially could you distill that down to? Um, let me see if I can do that. No, I can't. So, number one, do not believe you have ever identified the correct way of doing anything. Because you, if you believe you found the right way, you just simply haven't been alive long enough to see when it won't work. Or you simply haven't been open enough to recognize when it's not working. So the lack of dogmatism about what it means to be the best educator or the right educator or the best practices in education always come with the question of the best practices for whom, when, and why. So if you take, for example, the current clinical situation with the busyness of all the clinicians, you could have the finest clinical instructor who was loved at a time in the past when there was time available and every patient stayed in the hospital for 14 days. But that teacher, if he uses his same method, is not going to be an honored teacher by the residents who enable them to not function at all. So, so one is try not to be married to beliefs that you finally have found the golden answer. Yeah. The second is to recognize that the external environment is so important in challenging anything that you plan to do. The context in which you try to implement whatever you learn begins to be almost more important than the method that you're going to use. So that the recognition that things are changing, if we look at medicine today, and the recognition that the context of the practice of medicine now is so different than it was before, and the context of trying to teach in that practice. Uh, one of my um, faculty who is one of my colleagues who's a faculty member here who's very into the teaching of the physical exam uh, came up to me just the other day and he said, I feel so badly because I just realized that if I were to say to the residents, I really want to show you this part of the physical exam now, let's take the time to go do it, that I was in fact making their life harder than I would have if I'd have said, let's not worry, about, don't worry about the physical exam today. Uh, get your work done, and then I'll talk to you about it tomorrow. So he said, I'm finding myself putting off this teaching that's so important to my life because it's not meaningful to them right now in getting them through the day. So the two things I would emphasize is, one, that neither the methods nor the environment in which the methods are implemented can be counted on because there's some synergistic uh, process going on between those two things that make it necessary for everybody to remain innovative and think about new ways of doing things that stay true to the core of the reason you're doing them. So those would be my two pieces of it. And then the other is, for, is this that the love of the field of teaching and education that physicians have. I mean, every year when we get to work with another group, what we just get reminded of is just how wonderful the people are in our profession and how much they love, that's the word I would just say, to help other people. And what's happening is that when they don't get to do that, they become quite unhappy. What was your earliest uh, leadership experience? Fifth grade. <laughs> I'm thinking now that this goes, I think for me, and it's fifth grade being assigned to teach the class something in the math class. Mm -hmm. So my sense is, is that the idea that you were responsible for other people and that if it would be fun to figure out how to help them, etc., it goes a long, long way back. So I think even at that point, the idea that 
um, I could help other people with high and whether that goes on through and I could sort of map it all the way through undergrad, junior high school and high school and um, and so being in Mahler United Nations courses as high school student and being the president of the Mahler United Nations was as a junior in high school, those kind of things where the idea of overseeing and understanding what other people were going through has been going on for a long, long time, even out of a very small high school with a graduating class of 26, mm -hmm. uh, which I think sort of uh, highlights where many people end up coming from these very small places where they have been so invested in what they're doing that they can carry it on to where they go from, go from there. So that went on through college and through uh, medical school, I think in uh, medical school, being an officer in the class and and seeing myself now in retrospect going to the faculty and discussing with them whether they thought the curriculum was what it ought to be or not. Uh, I was relatively, in the retrospect, maybe inordinately bold and uh, probably way, 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 way overconfident. <laughs> uh, like many students are, but I had no hesitations to share my ideas and try to do it diplomatically, but the ideas were shared nonetheless. Um, mm -hmm. And I think for some, for in some ways I got rewarded for it, and uh, people began to, that started to enable people. Uh, and then, then that carried right on to residency and the excitement of residency and, uh, and fellowship. And then in fellowship it became an even greater set of opportunities to realize that my love of teaching had I allowed me to identify an area that other people cared about dramatically uh, and that with some skill and more than skill I guess with some guidance that's probably more important than the skill with some mentoring um, from Dan Fetterman and Hal Sox in particular uh, I was able to be guided to be introduced to a science of education that I didn't know existed now, they didn't know it existed either, but they knew it should exist, and they knew that it should be pursued, and they knew that there were things to learn about. And so uh, that work moved all the way through to seeing myself as a fellow and saying that they were able to guide me. And so it's gone for a long, long time. And so in some ways it's kind of like saying that... Um, um, the wonderfulness of being able to be in the field of medicine and, and still be most purely an educator mm -hmm. to say in some ways probably I'm more of an educator who happens to be in medicine than I'm a physician who happens to be an educator is education you could track back all the way to childhood mm -hmm. uh, and the desire to do it and the incessant inability to not take something you know and make sure somebody else learns it right away uh, that, that's been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. But now to merge that with medicine is just like uh, it's an exploding gold mine because you've got the incredible... I just shared this with the AAIM at the meeting last week mm -hmm. that, that as physicians you have this beautiful thing that we are trying to help people stay healthy and gratified and excited and as a teacher you're trying to help people be gratified and, uh, in their lives and that when you take those two fields and put them together, you have what's supposed to be something that's really unmatched uh, because there are almost no other fields that have the breadth that medicine has. That if you want to be a teacher of humanism, it's there. If you want to be a teacher of the basic sciences, it's there. If you want to teach, be a teacher of the intersection between those two, it's there. So um, medicine is just like uh, landing into a gold mine that if you're wanting to be a teacher, there's just so, no lack of the types of things that you can uh, share. So, so kind of reaching back, you know, this could be to your program director days, mm -hmm. to, you know, leading faculty development, because really you're leading an education. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, what were some of your earliest lessons in all that? particularly around the leadership piece? Uh, the importance of having help. Having help. Uh, even help for 
trying to uh, change a culture. Uh, I've always had the desire to have the culture of humanism totally imbue and totally permeate the culture of medicine teaching. And there's a whole lot of medicine teaching that doesn't necessarily have humanism as its visible core. Um, to have interprofessional colleagueship be a core of what it, what it, what's, what's there. Uh, but I took too, um, oh, how do I want to say this? I too strongly felt that they were mine, that those were my core ideas. And so I was trying to promulgate my ideas more than our ideas. And those two goals that I've just talked about of the infusion and permeation of humanism and medicine is a goal of so many teachers. But if you look at many academic institutions, it becomes so invisible that you're not sure it's the goal of so many teachers. And so if you think you're going to try to do that, I erred in trying to do it on my own. So as a program director, I had no associate program directors for the first three to four years. <laughs> I didn't realize the utility of an associate program director. So it's a bit of inappropriate egotism or inappropriate belief system that you're onto something that you have to pursue and that you you have to make the difference. Now, I'm still a believer that an individual can make a huge difference. And I think that there are too many times that individuals with wonderful ideas are actually saying to themselves, no, this system's pretty well set, I'm not going to mess with it. I think there's a whole lot of learned helplessness in our system. That it's as it, it, it is as it will be. And therefore, I will, you know, I'll do whatever I'm supposed to do to get through it. Uh, doing residency, doing internship, doing these things, rather than improving the quality of internship, improving the quality of residency, as a resident and as an intern. So, my sense was is that there that that wasn't uh, really uh, embraced by everyone, and as a result of that, I thought I really wanted to have that happen. So I felt. I feel, in retrospect, very good. I think that many of the residents and faculty and others at Stanford uh, are equally or more humanistic than I am. They're equally or more caring. They're equally or more. Uh, but, in fact, uh, so I probably didn't, didn't use as many helpers as I should have uh, at the time. So that's one. So I think uh, don't rely on yourself alone. Uh, and if your message is that far off base, then maybe you ought to re-examine the message. <laughs> um, what do you miss about leading a residency program? What were your favorite parts of it? Well, um, actually, my favorite parts of being a program director are the favorite parts of my current world, and that is having colleagueship with other people, having the opportunities to um, mentor or share or excite or um, uh, actually challenge other people for to go further um, has not left my life. So to say I'm not missing being a program director is true, but not because I'm not missing being a program director because in so many ways what I'm uh, getting the opportunity to do now is just be a program director with a different group of residents. Sometimes the residents that I currently have are faculty who are mid-level and have been faculty for 40 years or 30 years. Uh-huh. And so so I'm still a program director. Uh, I think that the, the characteristics that make somebody a program director are characteristics of uh, desire to help, characteristics of love of communication, characteristics of the excitement of somebody else succeeding. And I think those are more characteristics of our profession at large, but not everybody gets to, gets to experience them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I don't miss being a, a program director at all, uh-huh. uh, but because it's just uh, the things that gratified me I'm getting to do now still.
uh-huh. on yeah. a bigger scale. Yeah, and a different scale, a different scale. Yeah. yeah. And what, what were the things that you liked the least of about leading a residency program? I suppose if I look back, maybe the time when I was the least happy was uh, sending residents, uh, making residents leave the wards because their time was up. I visualize myself now walking into the CCU having to angrily be the policeman of the fact that the residents were still there and telling them they had to leave and telling the attending he had to get rid of them. He had to let them go home. And he had to send them home. It wasn't let them go home. He had to send them home. Uh, And so that issue of taking people who were doing a professional job and were being excited about it and telling them to stop it was very disheartening. Uh, so that was a, that was sort of the issues when the the rules and regulations began to uh, intersect with and sometimes impede, if if not even blatantly block, the uh, the goals that I had for the residents wanting to help each other. Now, if it's done really well uh, and you really ha- have created this wonderful collegial system, then maybe it's a sign that I hadn't succeeded that I hadn't created a program where the residents were absolutely committed to get their friend off at the right time. So maybe it was a sign of my own lack of success that I was saying it. But but those kind of memories come back about uh, having to put down your foot on the rules. I also had a luxury as a program director that uh, I don't think current program directors have, and that is that my educational philosophy is that the, the, the fortunate person is the person who gets to experience the widest variety of life's experiences. And so for me, I felt it was really useful to not track a resident. So I wanted every resident going into a subspecialty to spend enough time with the primary care people that he understood and she understood and respected that other group. And I wanted every primary care resident to spend enough time on the subspecialty that they understood that. And I wanted every resident to understand when they were at a place like Stanford what the value would be in taking a quaternary rotation where you worked with only those people doing bone marrow transplant or this. So my feeling in education was that the benefits of getting a broad experience far exceeded the benefits of getting a narrow experience. Well, now the rules and regulations are such that it's often very, very hard to make sure that every... When I had designed it, every resident had to take every rotation we had. We counted the number of residents we needed in order to do that, not in terms of how many do we need to man this and man that. So I think the constraints on the educational system about making people track, et cetera, there's a lot of, there's a lots of wonderful, and this is maybe another lesson, there are wonderful educational theoretical reasons for every educational model you want to have. If you want to track, you can defend it. If you want to not track, you can defend it. And often the design of the educational program becomes a philosophical design, not a practical design. And so I was really embedded in a philosophy of broad-based education, that people discovering themselves by being put... I guess in some ways this is sort of what's happened to me, is that I found out that my biggest points in growth were when I wasn't in charge of what I was doing. When somebody else made me do something that I would not have chosen to do, I would end up out of that, go out of that exercise, becoming significantly different. I would have not, on my own, gotten a PhD in education at Stanford. It was required that somebody else told me I needed to do this experience that I was totally unfamiliar with. So that led me as a program director The program director preceded that, but that philosophy of saying, I want you to do what you don't want to do because you're going to have so many times in your life where you're not even going to get the option of doing what it is that you don't think you want to do. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the the biggest difference. I was really, really very strongly committed to that breadth, Uh, the breadth of the university residents rubbing shoulders with community physicians, not only university physicians. So my belief in 
the breadth of education was trying to expose people to many, many, many different things. I don't think current program directors have that luxury because they have so many things that they have to have done. Uh, that uh, and and uh, and I don't want to suggest that I would be a uh, you know a, a critic of of tracking, but I think with every educational method that you choose, you gain something and you lose something. If you track too early in life, you track too early in life. <laughs> um, what were the biggest one or two mistakes you made in terms of leadership roles that you've been in? I think the first one is what I just told you, is that uh, I, should, I should have surrounded myself earlier with help, with help uh-huh. and, with, uh, and, with, and wisdom, not only with help, with wisdom. I mean, the program directors that I ultimately did have were my saving graces, as well as my chief residents. The program directors and chief residents are, though, they should be dressed in the wise men clothes. But the fact is, is that I didn't do that. The associate program director. So that would that would be one. Um, mistakes, other mistakes. Interesting. It's hard to see one's own mistakes when you're when you're looking at your thing. Uh, when did I cause any problem for anybody? Probably, and I don't know if this is a mistake. Probably not, but it's in the same theme. Uh, maybe not. I started to say not incorporating, uh, I don't know if it's a mistake. So it's a puzzle. I, I started to say not incorporating the basic scientist as much as I could have into the clinical program, but that's not a mistake, that's just a difficult task. Um, mistakes? Um, well, we can go with the one. No, no one mistake, but I'm just thinking there's there's plenty of others. Oh, well, maybe, maybe in fact... Um, because of what I just said, that any educational philosophy has its merits and its demerits, um, there's possible that I uh, was too, too, um, um, what's, what's the word would be, too liberal in my implementation of rules. Um, somehow the adulthood of residents uh, was more impressive to me than the rules. So I had a lot of trouble uh, having people sign in for morning report. I, I, I didn't do well with taking role because there was some sense that I wasn't treating them as I thought they should be treated. Uh, but it was probably a mistake because it could have saved a whole lot of headache if I had just gone ahead and done the roles and done the measurement that we were being assessed by. But I struggled with it a lot. So whether you want to call it a mistake or whether you call it a clash of philosophy or whatever, but I probably could have saved myself a lot of difficulty, <laughs> uh, sort of self-mistake, by not holding so tightly to what I believed the adult professional physician needed. And I always treated residents with, as, as a group of professionals that just had a different number of years of experience. And so I wanted residency program to be a training program for being an already practicing physician. So I wanted residents to see themselves as they would see themselves later. Well, that's not how the educational program was designed. And so I probably could have saved them a lot of headache, et cetera, and myself if I'd have just followed the rules without struggle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> followed new rules. But you sort of took the, how shall we say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Yeah, I thought the, the water better be really good. Yeah, and right. and and, uh, and you know, in some cases, I probably maybe wasn't serving that great of water, but uh, but it was an issue of, of that kind of thing. So, and it's again the belief that, uh, and and I think in some ways, it, I I think I think we have to say to ourselves that the data that shows that residents who are taught in a culture of quality improvement or whatever it is. When you track them, they live that culture. Mm-hmm. 
And now we're seeing that being shown by the data. Well, I believed that as a teacher, was that the program directorship was to design a program that let residents practice the kind of colleagueship that they should practice after they leave, the kind of relationships, the kind of that kind of thing. So maybe I was too married to that model at a time when the accountability model was dropping into medical education uh, as much as it is. Uh, so, so there was a conflict. Uh, clearly, clearly, even as an educator, I had a dramatic conflict with the issue of the implementation of measurable outcomes uh, or measurable requirements in a, in a graduate-level program. So to some degree, I, I would guess I was akin to uh, many of the uh, graduate-level faculty members who were worried that their graduate-level course looked like an introductory course. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I think you might have already mentioned them, perhaps, but and this is, a, I realize for you, probably yeah. a tough question because there were probably a lot of mm-hmm. them, but mm. who were your most important one or two mentors in your career? Well, you're right. It's a, uh, I mean, I immediately, uh, I immediately would say that uh, Dan Fetterman, as uh, chair of medicine at Stanford when I was here, well, I, how could I? I mean, Dan Fetterman and and Hal Sox were my two important, crucial mentors. Uh, but Dan Fetterman was my crucial mentor because he invented the fellowships in general and general medicine. If it weren't for he and others that said there should be fellowships in general medicine, so when the Kaiser Family Foundation founded the first fellowship in general medicine, it was here at Stanford because Dan Fetterman in association with Robert Glazer at the Kaiser Family Foundation, collaborated to say we should do this. So they had eight fellows the first year in 1976, so I was one of the eight fellows. Uh, so, you know, without his fellowship, without his invention of that fellowship, you know, the world would, my world would be very different. And he did it side by side with Hal Sox as a division chief, and Hal, in his wonderfulness as a, as a stickler, as a Hal is in medical decision making for a reason, because he insists on everything being where it ought to be, and so both of them were crucial. Hal was crucial in that, telling me I should go to the education school. Who else? David Irby. Uh, David was crucial as an educator whom I met in the middle, who also encouraged me to go to the Stanford Education School. Um, uh, back beyond that, Frank Stritter is an educator at the University of North Carolina. The whole group of educators, Lee Shulman, the group that started at Michigan State University and ended up, Lee ended up being down here at Stanford, but people who were the leaders in education who I got to rub shoulders with. Uh, uh, those five people would be crucial. My PhD advisor, Nathan Gage, who was so cordial and accepted me into his office to discuss with me a randomized controlled experiment I had with attending physicians and kindly said, oh, we've done that kind of work. Oh, that's very interesting. And then I found out later he was the father of experimental and design research in education. And I just edited the first handbook of research on teaching. So he was a gentle man. Uh, All of these people who ended up being so kind and so welcoming and so invested in me uh, could be thanked. And then you track that back from fellowship to the residency and saying who, but I, I don't know if not everybody knows, but I was a resident in three separate places. I was a, a medical student at the University of Colorado where I had tremendous support from those faculty, the chairman and all, and then went to Harbor General Hospital in L.A. where People like Michael Criley as the cardiologist there took the time. Oh, let me go back to medical school. In medical school, for reasons that I don't understand, a pathologist asked me at the end of the class to come up because he wanted to make sure that I went to Harvard to study with Stanley Robbins. Now, why did that teacher pick one student out of a class and say, I want you to go study with my mentor, Stanley Robbins, who writes the pathology book, Robbins Pathology. Mm -hmm. So I spent three months at Harvard 
with Stanley Robbins at the Mallory Institute of Pathology because this man decided that I should do that, right? So that happens. And then you track from that on in medical school and then you go on to residency uh, and you see people who took me on at Michael Criley at Harbor General Hospital who said, well, let me set it up for you to go to a cardiology three-month externship after your internship before you go in the Navy at, in, in London. Well, why does Michael Criley do that? Because Michael Criley, I was just at UCLA with Clarence Braddock a few weeks ago, and everybody talked about Michael Criley. couldn't come to my Grand Rounds because he was running a teaching session for the residents at the time of my Grand Round. Now, Michael Criley taught me as an intern in 1970. So fast forward to 2016, he couldn't get to my Grand Rounds because he was running a teaching session at Harvard General Hospital. But he took the time to set me up with a cardiologist in London. That's an internship. Then going to the University of Colorado for my second year, where I went back to Colorado ostensibly to meet my wife, and I did. I didn't mean that, but that's what happened. But the faculty at the University of Colorado who said, look it, I think now you, there's a possibility for you to go to Stanford. That's a different kind of place. We want you to go. And then I walked out just came to Stanford where Dan Federman was sitting. So you can just track back, 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 back. And it may go all the way back to the fifth grade math teacher who said, you know, you should be doing this. You should teach these people. You should, you should practice this for somebody else. So it's a long list. It's a long list. I had the wonderful honor of being given an alumni award here at Stanford. And I tried to track that back as to how far back you would go. It's, it goes way back. And the numbers of people, and what it, what it takes me back. What back? The award? My own, the, your own, my own success. Your own success. Yeah. Was yeah. it the fifth grade math teacher? I mean, if you were to like kind of pin it on one person, or is that impossible to do in your case? Impossible. Uh-huh. Impossible. No, no, it's impossible to do, to decide it was one person. Uh-huh. And what I think the important piece about that is just how many mentors it takes to be at the right place at the right time. And what it also has come back to another belief system that I have is that I actually believe the human being has this tremendous drive to teach. That it's actually a, an issue of at least our species, if not other species. That this gratification that comes from truly helping somebody else, which I would call teaching, in many cases it is teaching, is so deep that it, 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 it's, it's all around you. And when people get gratified, that's one of the things that, that the gratification means. I think it's what keeps first grade teachers going to school. When you start thinking of elementary and secondary school teachers and ask yourself why they're doing that, uh, you know, we talk about clinical teaching being difficult. No comparison. No comparison <laughs> to what somebody else would, some of those folks have to do. So I think it's a, there's this wonderful humanity theme, theme of humanity about the desire to help other people. So in some ways now I sort of see my role as trying to enable other people to enable other people. Well stated. Yeah. Uh, um, so sticking with the theme of mentors, um, what are a couple of the key components or of whatever you want to call it, great secrets to be yeah. a, a great mentor? Well, I think the key, uh, well, there are many, but to me one of the key things about mentorship is the willingness to spend the time to find out where the heart of the mentee is. That, to me, mentorship now is most easily done when I understand the person that I'm mentoring. Where I don't come with a multiple-choice series of questions and a review of systems. It really is really finding out why somebody kicks. (coughs) So it's really determining the passion of the mentee. Because, and this is where I had a, probably you asked about my gratification as a program director, 
that's when Stanford was a wonderful place for me to be. Because being a, an institution, like so many institutions in the country, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, identify Stanford as being so unique in this regard, because it's not unique. It's, it's a wonderful institution, but not unique in this regard. So many institutions have so many resources about the variety of topics in the world that the role of a mentor may often be to guide the person once their passion has been found to others who can help them implement the passion. For me, it was very interesting that Hal Sox and Dan Fetterman decided, I watched them in retrospect very carefully, they watched me long enough to find my passion. And then they asked themselves, if this passion is going to succeed, what should it do? And it was, you better go study the field about which you're passionate. It's very straightforward. But it didn't start with saying, go study this field. It started with identifying the passion. So I think it's the mentorship of every fellowship director and the mentorship even of residency directors that we are so busy implementing our curriculum that it's absolutely possible to never check into anybody's passion. The feedback system seldom asks, could you please tell me what your passion was when you entered medicine? Never. You know, it's, I don't, let me tell you how you did on the last rotation. The last rotation may have nothing to do with my passion. So the piece of mentorship that I think is so key is when the mentor takes enough time to find out who he's mentoring or who she's mentoring and then wraps the world around that bud and lets it grow. For me, the world was this university and the world was the education school. And they took that bud and stuck it in the education school. And I, and I grew because I met a bunch of educators who also wanted to have that happen. And somebody else would be in the ed econ school or whatever. But I think that the, the key is to say that the role of the mentor is to first find the passion and then find the places that you can wrap around that person who's passionate. So if you're, and then, then I would say Stanford is an institution that I always considered without walls. It was not at all unusual for me, and some recently have come back and tell me, just yesterday I had lunch with somebody who told me that I told them to go somewhere else for, part of the, for a certain part of their training. He said, you realize you told me as a student that I should go elsewhere. And I said, yes, and so did a faculty member at the University of Colorado who sent me to Harvard, and so did. So the point is, is that once the passion is identified, the next job of the mentor is decide where in the world the passion could grow, and then the world is open. So that would be my advice to mentors: is spend enough time to enjoy the passion, to find and enjoy the passion. Um, that's great advice. Um, it almost makes you wonder if there should, you know, as program directors are going down their little checklist of yeah. have I reviewed the evaluations, have yeah. I talked to you about whether you're reaching the milestones of each rotation. Uh, have I asked you about recently yeah. what you're most passionate about? Yeah, no, I think it would be a wonderful idea, yes. Um, realizing this could be an answer that you could go on until this evening and miss your trip to the mountains, but what what is the single thing in your career that you're most proud of? Hmm. Wow. It's accumulation of things, actually. Um, for certain, the faculty development program is is the jewel, for sure. That's got to be the jewel. Uh, with Georgette Stratus, without Georgette, it wouldn't be where it is now. So, but the collaboration between the two of us that brought about that program, I think, has probably affected more people in the world in a positive way than probably anything else that I've done. So that has got to be a jewel um, that, that I'm proud of. Uh, the second piece is I think, uh, I hope that, that, that there's an a, uh, impact of all of the work that I do, whether it be a program director or a 
faculty developer or a counselor or a commentator on the situation we face today that that I find people are resonating with and that gives me tremendous pride that there is a human desire that we work at our at work with uh, hardest to provide meaning and humanism to what we do. So I suppose that that um, uh, I was just given I was just at a a visiting professor to an, an institute institution. Uh, turned out to be the University of Michigan. And my host said to me at the end of it, uh, he said that he had watched me for the three days and that what he saw in every time I did something was that uh, that there was caring, that there was a sense of my concern and desire to help the whoever else I was with or to make that person be better or whatever it was. And so I, I guess I'm proud of that, that there's a, a sense that the residents in our program, um, I think, sort of learned caring and sort of believed in what it meant to be a colleague of others. Uh, and so as a, as, a mission with a, as a mission with a message, I guess I'm as proud that I think that the faculty development program is a program about caring, the residency program was a program about caring. Um, the mentorship that I'm doing now is about caring. And the belief that I have now about the introspection that I think our field needs to look at itself is an issue about caring. Uh, so I think I'm, I'm very proud about that message being one that allowed me to keep centering myself as to what it was that I was about. And then the faculty development program is probably... Uh, an example of a methodology for a dissemination of that caring. Because if you are fortunate enough to do something that makes teachers more effective, the paraphrase of that is being fortunate enough to make some people better carers. Period. Um. Sort of changing gears slightly from that, um, you've probably interviewed hundreds of applicants for various things over the years, yes. whether it be residency or fellowships and so forth. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite interview questions that you like to ask to get oh. at the essence of whether the person is right for what you're oh. interviewing them for? That's a wonderful question. Um, well, it's very interesting because uh, you're saying how many people did you interview? Well, I took great pride and uh, selfishness in the fact that I, as a program director, interviewed everybody that we interviewed. So we interviewed 300 people uh, in the season uh, of the whatever number applied. Uh, on every day, I stayed in my office until I saw everybody that came that day. And those interviews were five to ten minutes long. And what I was trying to do in those interviews was to get to know that person and decide what I could say that would help them go further. So the key piece was, what it is, what is it that you want to become? What is it that you need? And if you felt that you were with somebody, which I'm telling you you are, who has no investment in where you go, then let me know what it is that you want to do. And it was really remarkable how many people would be honest about what they were struggling with. Because I didn't, and in some cases I was just, actually I was just having lunch with another program director yesterday and another person who I interviewed as a resident. Uh, uh, My goal as a residency program director was not to recruit people to come here. It was to identify the right place or the right places there isn't such a thing as the right place. That's the other joke in the, in the process of interviewing for residency program. But to interview them to find out how I could guide them to the right places that would help them become what they weren't. So I used to, uh, and often still do, try to tell people that they should go into a non-matching program. That the 
risk of the matching program is that people seek out to go play, to play go to places that look like them. And in fact, if you want a program to help you grow, you should try to go to places that don't look like you. So that I think the, the matching program was part of the problem. So what I did with all those interviews, and you asked what's the key question, it was the key question was saying, know that my missed, the key question is sort of embodied in the preamble. Know that the investment in my interview is not to recruit you here, but to help you go where you need to go to help you become who you want to become. Having said that, what is it that you're wondering about? And then people would honestly say, you know, I'm comparing this place with this place with this place with this place. Do you think one would push me more than the other, given who I am? And surprisingly, some of those interviews in five minutes would answer the story. Fascinating. Yeah. So I had a lot of fun of trying to do this five-minute interview of go from the passion to the advice. And if the advice is saying, you, you're really onto something and there's so-and-so that I know that's across the country and he's into this and you ought to try to work with him, then that's what I would tell him to do. And so I wasn't a recruiter to this school. I was a recruiter to whatever school would be the best school I thought would be for you. And then rank order and let fate. The other thing which I used to do is to try to remind people that since most of the best decisions about my career came when I was removed as a decision maker was to really relish in letting fate decide your fate <laughs> because left to your own devices uh, and I just told the group that I just got to give the Georgetown graduation commencement address for the Georgetown Medical School and I told them that the main thing I want to remind them is that they were not their best advisor and to try to get by somebody who thought totally differently than they do and listen um, it kind of makes you wonder, because uh, I think that was also the part I enjoyed the most of program directing. It was connecting people with, you know, what I thought they needed or where they wanted. To. I remember emailing yeah. you about a few applicants who hadn't gotten for interviews sure. here. I thought sure. would be great here, and yeah. you granted them interviews. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, right. Exactly. Um, that's probably one of the most satisfying parts of right. program directing. Right. Really. Right. It's not right. the GI recruited this great right. person. Is you recruit somebody who doesn't belong in your program if you go about it with that. No, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, yeah. No, so you're, you're reminding all the things about the program directorship and the times when somebody would call me and say, this is a person, well, you just met one a moment ago. Here's a person that you should have and you missed them in your when you screened. Mm-hmm. And then they would come and they would be exactly the person we should have. And here's a person that you shouldn't have, <laughs> where for their benefit, you're not the right place right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's sort of maybe one of the maturation phases of being yes, yes, You get in yes. there and you think it's just get anyone you can. Oh, yeah, I know that's uh, uh, yeah. well, Get all the AOAs, whatever, when in fact no. all the AOAs could be a disaster at your... So, so there's this, there's this, um, I guess I would call it a, almost a, a syndrome in um, leadership within, um, well, it's probably within leadership, but it, particularly so with doctors, because as you've alluded to, doctors go into the profession for specific reasons, uh, mm-hmm. and it's to help people. Yes. Um, and I think uh, sometimes that creates problems when it comes to leadership, because mm-hmm. it's very hard to overcome what I call the nice guy thing, which yes. is making difficult decisions, mm-hmm. uh, doing things that mm-hmm. you feel like might be seen as rather harsh. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How did you t- deal with that? How not did you very deal well. with that as a leader? I think probably not very well. Mm-hmm. I think uh, in some ways probably uh, I would have needed a group around me to do some things that were more administratively oriented. I am not the best administrator by any stretch of the imagination. And so my own sense is, is that uh, uh, one has your own skills and in some cases you back them up with other things, people that can help you do it. But uh, no, I wouldn't say I was a, a great administrator. And some people thought I was far too kind. Far too kind. Far too. I'm sure there are people, oh my God, he's got the residents that uh, residents are calling the shots. Well, in my mind, uh, the residents were practicing calling shots. 
they weren't calling shots, they were practicing calling shots. Whereas in somebody else's, oh no, they're still the medic, they're still the student, they're still the underling, and they should be listening, not talking. So there are that philosophical difference that came up, come, comes about. But as a, as a true administrator, getting the task done, doing this and doing this, I'm probably you you probably do not want me. If that's the major part of your role of your of your task, uh, I'm not your guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> you wouldn't be a good CEO, probably of the probably hospital's not. health system. Probably <laughs> not. And in fact, I would probably tell them, "Don't hire me." Yeah. Uh, let me tell you where you can use me, mm-hmm. but I don't think my now there's there's some piece of this now, and this is where I I would go to um, to. The, the work that I was sharing with you over lunch about Samuel Sinek mm-hmm. and that is that there's some piece about keeping reminding people about why they're doing what they're doing my sense is is I would be I probably did that but sometimes if you do that too much you may not give adequate attention to the tasks of the day and if you give too much attention to the tasks of the day you may, in fact, forget about the why of what you're doing. I'm probably more of a why guy than I am a task guy. And therefore, I'm going to be better or worse in some certain roles <laughs> based on which of those two things needs to be done the most. Interesting. Um, I think my last question for you is... Um, let me just make sure that I got all the questions I wanted to ask you. Oh, actually, I have one more before my last question. What pushes your buttons, Kelly? Just me really, really upset. Uh huh. Hmm. Um. The word that's coming to my mind, but I want to make sure I'm not being too grandiose about it, is. Uh, incivility, um, uh, people who show disrespect for other people without being uh, recognizing what they're doing, uh, that kind of thing will bother me a lot. Uh, so the, the recognition and the lack of recognition or people being disrespectful of others, um, not recognizing the importance of what other people are. Uh, so that kind of thing. I. Even I would be bothered, for example, I was one of the guys very bothered by the way we treated drug representatives. That, that they were, they had a bad disease and we were got to get the disease out of our midst. And, and so I remember going to the Society of General Internal Medicine meetings as we were going through the transition of with or without drug support. And I remember there was a lineup of drug reps on one wall and we tried to get as close to the other wall as we could to make sure we didn't get contaminated. Uh, that bothered me immensely. So when I see blatant disrespect of other people for who they are and what they are, it bothers me a lot. So it's a the current world and the current television uh, uh, overwatching right now is driving you up the wall. Is driving me and a whole bunch of other people up the wall because of the fact that we're finding ourselves finding people who are willing to say. I'm going to support this person because he's going to be powerful or she's going to be powerful in making sure that this group doesn't do that anymore or this group doesn't do that anymore. So that's at a larger scale, but at a humanistic scale uh, and at a scale of physiciandom, then it's how do you make sure that physicians are the leaders in showing the respect for everybody else in the system. Um, I was just on rounds uh, attending the last time I was on the wards. And a part of our rounds is in case management rounds with the nurses and the, phys- uh, and the physical therapists and the social workers and all, and the case managers, all wonderful, wonderful people. And at the end of rounds, uh, one of the nurses said, well, you know, I really loved rounds with you. And I said, why? What, what did we do? She said, you respected our opinions. You asked us what we thought, and you respected what we thought, and it had a bearing on what we did with the patient. And I thought, well, 
That's pretty remarkable. It means that if if you're out of the ordinary because you're showing respect, that's a sad commentary on what we've done. That that should be the ordinary, not the extraordinary. So that's probably the core of what bothers me and the core of what drives me. It's kind of like a statement that your strength and your weakness are in the same, or on the same coin. Uh-huh. Just out of curiosity, what uh, what, were, what did your parents do? You grew up in Colorado. Yeah, that? my parents ran a grocery store. Uh-huh. A small one? Or small, or well, uh-huh. in a small town, it was a big grocery what store. What town was that? A little town called Center, Colorado. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Um, what's the greatest misperception about you that people have? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I really don't know. I don't have any idea, really. I don't know. Uh, maybe, no. It would depend on who the observer was, I suppose. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I, I think I'm probably on my sleeve, mm-hmm. pretty much. And I hope what's on my sleeve is true. And so I, uh, I don't, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> That's, okay. That's a great question, but I don't know what it would be. Yeah. So my final uh, question, which is really sort of a three-tiered one, is I usually ask for two book recommendations. And this is thinking about the AIM membership because they're going to be the ones reading this right. uh, interview. Yeah. Um, non-medical book medical book, either leadership or anything pertaining to medicine. But with you, I'm going to add a third book. Wow. So a non-medical, non-education book, a medical book, uh, and an education, a book about education. If you were to say to a member, you've got to read this book at some point Hmm. about each of those things. Hmm. I don't know if I would... Well, I think I'm only going to give you these two that are very vibrant for me now. And these are the two that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about. And and, uh, these are these two books, uh, the book by Samuel Sinek and the book by uh, Daniel Pink. Uh, One is called Drive and the other is called What to Why. Uh, And I would put those as the right now the the two that I would think are most embodying where I am at the moment. Beyond that, I think you're really talking about um, uh, embeddments of philosophy and embeddments, embedded things in uh-huh. religion, embedded things uh, that are hard to say that there's a, a, a book that I think encapsulates uh-huh. it. So those would be my two. Okay. Are you a, are you much of a non? I mean, of a fiction reader? No, yeah. not at all. I'm I, I'm much more love non non stuff. Non fiction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah and that's been a, and you said I don't know if you asked me about my weakness. The the, the in, excitement about reality is probably my weakness <laughs> because there's so much about reality that non reality teaches that I probably haven't adva- taken advantage of that as much as. <laughs> Right. to a question I didn't ask, but yeah. that's a, a great yeah. answer. Well, that's that, it. That would that be would, a weakness. Yeah, that's, that's well, I don't tell you about whether it's part of this or not, the phone call. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, when I uh, gave up being a program director, um, I went to one of the parties that the interns were having, because I gave uh, the announcement of me giving up being a program director was made the week of the new interns. So some people had come largely because I was here. and uh-huh. I met some of those people, people right, came for you. Yeah, and then I wasn't here. Uh-huh. So. Uh, and so I went to the party, and I was walking around talking to the interns, and uh, this gentleman who just called me was an intern at the time. So it was talking about 1989. And I said to him, Ed, I said, I want you to know that doing what I just did is was not easy, and et cetera, and and he looked me in the eye and he said, Dr. Skeff, we just want you to be happy doing what you are doing. And it was so powerful to me that we reversed roles and he became my counselor about his 
investment in me. So he said, we're not here because you're what you're going to do for us in some sense. We're here because of what we were going to do for you. So he has remained in touch uh, and uh, as an advisee and an advisor. As I just helped him, he just became a White House fellow and just came from there. And every time he's near the campus, he's also a GI fellow and working on quality improvement, he calls to see, can we meet? No. But that moment when the intern said to the program director, I'm invested in you being happy, was sort of the most beautiful you know, expositions of what we're all about. It was just great. You know, isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. And so now he's still calling. Let's see. <laughs> and what, the year you stepped down was? 89. So I was from 89 to 2009, 20 years. Okay. 2009. So seven years. So two thousand nine. That's he. That's when he came in. Yeah. Two thousand nine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So doing the two decades was great, mm-hmm. and it was a great thing for me to shift off. No, no question about it. Uh-huh. That's a long time to program. Right? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. So, yeah. Wonderful. Well, well, this has been a treat for me. Well, it, I-